Hey Mercy Hill, welcome back to Deeper Dive. This time we're going to start taking a look at the pre-creation state in the first couple of verses of Genesis. Before we get started, I just want to apologize for the quality of the audio last time. Uh, since then, I was able to get hold of some better equipment. So hopefully things just sound a little better, besides maybe the hissing of my computer in the background. But um, it's, I think, a lot better than what it was last time. Sadly, Nate is not with me this time, but we will keep moving along, um, and hopefully he'll be back for the next one. So let's go ahead and jump into Genesis 1. So in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right. So, let's start with the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last time, if you hung in with us as we walked through all the um, ancient Near Eastern thoughts and some, of, uh, some samplings of ancient Near Eastern texts, we talked about how ancient Near Easterners would have understood the pre-creation state as endless waters, not as the empty vacuum of space or something like that um, before creation began. We also mentioned that the Bible thinks in those same terms. The original authors and readers thought of the pre-creation state in the same way. So I thought it was worth camping out on this um, first verse for just a minute, um, just because this verse, as well as the next few chapters, have been kind of hijacked by a um, creation versus evolution debate, or just kind of these science debates. Um, and not to say that those debates shouldn't be had, but uh, based on what we've talked about so far, I don't think those conversations should be had based on the text of Genesis. And I just want to point out um, how this verse is supposed to be used and thought of uh, just so we can understand it properly and not try to upload our modern context and modern questions onto this ancient text. There's one more thing that needs to be said that I think is going to be pretty crucial to our study of Genesis before we dive in, and that is that there are entire um, ministries built on the interpretation of this text. There are churches and people and teachers who are very adamant about their own interpretation, and they are so to the point that they villainize Christians who disagree with them. Um, and understandably so, they uh, have been taught, well, at least those who have been taught, the teachers themselves, it's a different story, but those who have been taught that anyone who reads it differently than their teacher is trying to intentionally undermine the text and intentionally undermine Jesus um, for their own agenda, that's just not true, and it just causes division in the church. So we need to recognize that there are a lot of different views out there that are legitimately trying to understand the text as it's meant to be understood. They're trying to honor it as God's word. They're trying to honor Christ, and they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they disagree with us on this passage. And I hope that, in my case, even if you were to disagree with what I'm saying, at least you'll be able to see that I'm trying to actually interpret the text as God's Word, to honor it as such, and to honor Christ as we're going through this. So, this verse, Genesis 1.1, has been um, taken by some to say that this is the moment where uh, God actually created all matter. 
this is where God created the earth and the waters that we see in the next couple of verses. And from our modern perspective, that's a pretty reasonable assumption. But we need to remember that God came and introduced himself, not science, to a people already set in an ancient culture. He was trying to introduce himself to them. He wasn't trying to introduce to them 21st century science. And so we need to try and read this text like they would have. And they would have assumed that this was the the heading and that the matter that we see already in verse 2 was preexistent, that the um, the formless and void earth and the waters were actually something that was was preexistent, was already there, that God formed everything out of. It helps to see that in chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, form this sort of frame around the six days of creation. Again, suggesting that chapter 1, verse 1 is a basically a heading, um, a summary or an introduction rather than the first act of creation. We'll also notice as we read throughout Genesis that there are these headings before a new narrative is introduced. So if Isaac's story is about to begin, we'll read, and these are the generations of Abraham. So throughout the book, whenever a person's story is about to begin, the focus is about to shift to them, we'll say, these are the generations of that character's father. Now, when you get to Adam, since he has no biological father, in chapter 2 we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, why would it make sense that in Genesis 1, we don't begin with the same type of heading? Well, at that point... This is the beginning of creation. The author is not wanting to make us think that Genesis 1, 1 is a continuation of God's previous creation, because there was no previous creation. That's why he gives us the heading, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I just wanted to point out that Genesis does have these, these are the generations of headings, just to show that Genesis does use headings in its narratives throughout the book. So it would be completely normal for us to expect there to be a heading at the beginning of the book. And there's other things to this, um, such as the, the word translated in the beginning is Bereshit, which is actually a compound word. There's that B on the beginning, the bait, which means in, and then Reshit, which means beginning. And this word, you actually see it in Jeremiah 26, 27, and 28. The first verse in all three of those chapters, it says, in the beginning of the reign of, and then it has a king, and it usually says, um, a prophecy came to a prophet, and so on. So you can see how this word, it doesn't necessarily mean a specific point in time, but rather a period of, in, of time in which something happened. So it would make sense that this word is, again, not introducing us to the exact moment when Yahweh brought all matter into existence, but it is uh, describing essentially the first six days, the span of time at the beginning of history whenever Yahweh began to create the heavens and the earth. Now, why am I taking the time to talk about this verse being a heading, um, drilling into these details to show that uh, all the matter is already there, that 
Um, this isn't the first act of creation from which God goes from nothing to waters and earth. Well, we'll talk about this more later on as we get more of the pieces of the world of Genesis 1 put into place. Um, but this is going to be very significant for understanding the biblical narrative and the biblical worldview and exactly what Yahweh is doing here in creation. So this is going to be an important part of the biblical world. Now this might raise uh, some questions or um, concerns. I know when this was first pointed out to me um, where I came from when I was uh, new in the faith, this was uncomfortable because I'd been taught that this is the uh, beginning point where God created all things out of nothing. If in the creation story there was already existent matter, doesn't that somehow threaten the doctrine of Yahweh's sovereignty or his power or his status as creator? Well, again, if we're thinking from our own modern concepts, it might seem that way at first. First, I just want to re reassure you that no, that's not the case, especially if we're thinking from a biblical worldview. We've been uh, influenced by hundreds of years of scientific thought and thousands of years of philosophical thought that have um, brought us to the place that we are today that makes this whole concept seem foreign and even threatening in some ways. But again, the biblical author is not asking the same questions that we are, and the world that he is building has a very coherent and profound significance to himself and to his original audience. And again, we'll revisit this issue. We're going to talk more about uh, creation ex nihilo. Um, we'll talk about, you know, where does it appear other places in scripture? Right now, we're just concerned with what is Genesis 1 telling us and how does that plug into the narrative that the author is creating, that God is trying to use to introduce himself to his people. So for now, we'll move on to the next verse. And just keep in mind that we're going to revisit this, but the biblical worldview has the earth and the waters existing whenever God begins his creative act. Now, the earth was without form and void. If you haven't been able to tell, we're going to move through these verses pretty slowly in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. We'll pick up speed as we go, because um, again, we're, we're laying the foundation, we're laying the groundwork, and as we gain a better understanding of the biblical worldview, we'll be able to just move a little faster because we know what to expect and what it is that we're seeing. So we're going to pause again here on the earth was without form and void, because those two words, without form and void, are very important. They uh, have been I think in a lot of cases misinterpreted, um, and so it's good for us to again stop and look at where these words occur in the Bible, how they're used, and understand what it means for the earth to be without form and void. So the Hebrew terms here for without form and void are tohu vavohu. That first word tohu means wilderness or wasteland or emptiness, and with that meaning of emptiness, you can see where they got the the translation void. But formless and void, I think, makes 
a lot of us think, again, of the empty void of space. That's how I've heard it talked about a lot. And maybe that's not what it makes you think of, but I just want to put my finger on that particular frame of mind because it it is a popular um, interpretation of this verse, but it's just, again, not quite accurate. I just want to make us a little more precise so, again, we can get to know the biblical world. Uh, John Walton, he actually proposes that a uh, good definition of tohu is any portion of the world or the cosmos that is non-functional, meaning that it is any place that does not serve any constructive purpose to humans and to society. So again, you can see why wilderness and wasteland are good translations of this word. The other word, vohu, is actually not used anywhere in Scripture unless it is paired with tohu. And this word is only used three times. Some scholars think that since vohu is only found with tohu, that these two words are used um, always together as a hendiatis, which in English a hendiatis is something saying like uh, you're, you're nice and warm. You're not saying that you are nice and you're warm, you're using the word nice to describe the fact that you're warm. It's two words with a single meaning. So, where do we find these two words used together? We find them in Isaiah 34.11 and Jeremiah 4.23. So let's go read those and see how they are used so that we can better understand our passage in Genesis. So here's Isaiah 34, and I'm going to start in verse 8 just to give us a little bit of context here. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch, night and day it shall be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion, tohu. It says confusion, but if you have an ESV, it, there's actually a uh, note here that says formlessness. They just chose the translation confusion here as well, um, possibly because of the emptiness aspect. So he shall stretch tohu over it and the plumb line of vohu. This passage is describing the day that the Lord is going to come and take vengeance on Edom for their atrocities against Israel. And it says that he is going to basically put them in a state of tohu and vohu. He is describing the nation of Edom being plunged into a state of ruin and making them no longer fit for humans to dwell there. And that's why he talks about the, the hawk and the porcupine and the raven possessing that land, because these are um, creatures that dwell outside of the human community. So this is going to be a place no longer fit for humans, but for creatures of the wilderness. Jeremiah 4.23 gives us a very similar image. It says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. It was tohu vavohu. And the heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and on the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all the cities were laid in ruins before Yahweh, before his fierce anger. 
So again, a similar picture. The land is destroyed. It's now fit for for birds and creatures of the wilderness. The fruitful has become a desert. These two words, when they're put together, they carry the connotations of a place that, as far as the flourishing of human community is concerned, this place is in ruin. So if we go back to Genesis 1-2 and see that the earth was tohu vavohu, it's saying that there was this landmass here that it is in it's in ruin. It's in no fit state for any human to dwell on it. And we will see towards the end of this chapter that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. So we are in a, a not good state, and he's going to make it good. Now, after the mention of the earth that is in ruin, we have the darkness that is over the face of the deep. First, let's talk about this darkness. So in the Bible, darkness, it can be used in a couple different ways, but by and large, it is a negative uh, piece of imagery. It's often associated with death and Sheol. You see that in Job 10, 21 through 22, or Psalm 88, 12. Um, in Proverbs 2, 13, you see that it's a place for the wicked. You see it's a place of wicked deeds in Isaiah 50, 10, the domain of satanic powers in Ephesians 6, 12, or even a means of judgment that Yahweh uses in Jeremiah 4, 28, 23, 12, or Joel 2, 10. Um, these are just some examples, some verses that I'm throwing out, um, just examples of how darkness is used. And I'll read a, a couple of them to you. Let, let me read Job 10, 21 through 22. It says, Before I go and shall not return to the land of darkness and of deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. So here Job is describing his death um, in his mind, into his descent into the underworld, into the abyss, and he describes it as darkness and shadow. In Isaiah 50.10 it says, Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. So here it is talking about the person who doesn't fear Yahweh, who doesn't have any um, respect or covenant loyalty or no trust for Yahweh. He is someone who walks in darkness. So here the darkness is a place for rebels to Yahweh, for um, those who do wicked wicked deeds. It's, it's a place of rebellion and wickedness. Now, I want to point out that the darkness here, it's not full of enemies or wicked people, and the darkness is not itself an enemy. But it is a suitable place for those that are enemies to Yahweh to go. Whenever God does create, if there is anything that will rebel against him, it can go into the darkness and be at home. So even though the darkness doesn't pose any actual threat to Yahweh or his creative power, it is not something that's good. And the waters actually have a very similar imagery attached to them. Here in Genesis 2, the word for the deep uh, is the Hebrew tahom, and it refers to the, the deep pre-creation chaos waters that go down to death. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated a couple hundred years before Jesus, this word tahom is actually translated as abyssu, the abyss. So that immediately should uh, tell you what 
the ancient thinker thought about the Tahome, the deep. I want to read Psalms 18, 16 through 17, and Psalm 74, 13 through 15, just to give you, again, some biblical examples of how this word is used and how the imagery is employed. So, Psalm 18, verse 16 and 17 says, He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. And then in Psalm 74, we read, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the head of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks, and you dried up the ever-flowing streams. Now, in this, the author uses uh, all sorts of sources of water. This is heightened poetry where he's just um, referring to these deep chaotic waters and just bringing in all sorts of um, poetic references to water that Yahweh is conquering. And the waters here are compared to here actual enemies. They are um, enemies that are overcoming David. I do want to point out that in Genesis 1, the, the deep is not an enemy, someone who is going to challenge Yahweh's creative power. There are no obstacles or opposition to Yahweh's creation. But throughout the Bible, this imagery is personified and compared to actual enemies or spiritual or physical rebels to Yahweh or to his people. If you remember last time we talked about the uh, Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish, and in that there is this saltwater deity named Tiamat, and she is a uh, serpent sea goddess who is at odds with the creator Marduk. There, the waters and the rebel and this enemy serpent are all rolled up into one image. And that same image, that same combination of thoughts is found all throughout the Hebrew Bible. But in Genesis 1, the author actually takes the time to make the point that these waters are not the serpent itself in that story. It's something that is bad. It's not good. It's a home for the wicked. But it is not an enemy or opposition. It is not the serpent. We'll actually see the, the serpent show up later, and we'll come back to Psalm 74 to talk about that a little more when we get a little further in Genesis 1. So to summarize where we've been so far, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is not the first act of creation, but that is just a title or a heading summarizing what is about to happen in the narrative that begins in verse 2. And whenever God began to create, there was already this, this land that was in ruin. And there was darkness and the waters, the deep, which were not enemies of Yahweh, but they are things that are not good. They are ready-made homes for things that are in opposition to Yahweh, even though at this point there are no pre-existent enemies of Yahweh. That is what I want us to take away for today. And before we end here, I do want to make a comment about the word earth. So the word earth in Hebrew is Eretz, and it's translated a lot as earth, but what do you think of when you think of the earth? You probably think of the big floating rock sphere that floats around in the void of space. 
That is not what the ancient person thought of. This word is translated as earth or territory or ground or land. Um, I really like the translation land because, again, we're not referring to the big space rock. We're referring to a, a region. It, it refers to kind of like we use the word land today as we have the land of America or the land of Europe or wherever you may think of. It can also be used to say all the land, saying, you know, in our minds, the whole earth. But again, in the ancient person's mind, they're not talking about the whole round spherical globe. They're talking about all the land that Yahweh has placed upon the waters. Or they're talking about a particular land, such as the land of Babylon, or the land of Edom, or the land of Israel, or the land of Egypt. So whenever you see the word earth, don't think earth or the entire world. Just think of the word land. And that will play a role in how you um, interpret some of scripture. We'll see that a little bit in Genesis. Uh, it really plays a big role in books such as the Minor Prophets, where it talks about judgment on the Eretz. And you can read that and think of this worldwide judgment or worldwide blessing, but often what the prophet is talking about is blessing or judgment on a particular land, on the land of Israel or the land of Edom or something like that. So again, that's just how the word earth can suggest to us more than what the author actually intends, and we should just have that in our mind. It's, it's not going to uh, make or break your, how you read the passage, but um, in some places it can play a, a large role in your reading. Okay. So, we have covered all the dark, terrible stuff that is before creation and left off with the Spirit of God that is hovering over the surface of the water. So next time we will pick up with the Spirit of God and Day 1. And I do hope in the near future to have an episode where we talk a little more about the idea of Yahweh creating from pre-existent material and what that means for us um, especially philosophically or existentially, because it has a lot to say there. We need to put a couple more of the Genesis 1 worldview pieces into place, and I also would really like to have Nate here for that conversation. But I do want to have that conversation soon, because I think that can raise a lot of questions, and it also has profound implications when it's properly understood. So... If you all do have any questions in the meantime or in the future, reach out to myself or Nate and let us know what those questions are, whether you just catch us on a Sunday morning or text us, email us, whatever, because this podcast is supposed to be a service to, to Mercy Hill, to our body of believers, to help us better understand our Bibles. So ask anything about Genesis, ask anything about um, really anything that has to do with our Christian life or our Bibles, because our goal is for our church community to have a better understanding of the hope that we have in Jesus so that we can better live as his images, his nation of priests, his representatives. So let us know if you have any questions at all. We will take some time on Deeper Dive to answer them. And thank you all for listening.